Welcome to The Lead. I'm Casey Hunt in today for Jake Tapper. President Biden, you saw there, just wrapping up his speech on his plans to, quote, fund the police. The president emphasizing his support for law enforcement officers across the country. He also announced a new push to try to take on gun violence by adamantly saying he wants to ban assault weapons. I want to bring in MJ Lee, who is at the White House. MJ, it's notable where the president is speaking today. He is in Pennsylvania, a critical battleground state. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Casey. And even though this was a speech that was billed a public safety speech, there's no question that this was absolutely also a political speech uh, as well. Uh, it was interesting, some of the key themes, uh, overarching political themes that we heard uh, the president talk about, they are becoming increasingly familiar. Uh, at one point in the speech, he talked about uh, going abroad, traveling abroad and having world leaders essentially ask him what is happening over there uh, in the U- uh, in America and him essentially having to answer questions about sort of the state of democracy in this country. So this was just one more way in which the president sort of hammered home uh, the theme of protecting democracy uh, here in the U.S. And uh, as you can see here, uh, he is now mingling with some of the folks in the crowd. Uh, Before he took the stage, we had a number of local elected officials uh, go on stage and introduce him. Uh, So in that way, too, it very much uh, had the vibe of a political event. Uh, But I will note that one person, one candidate, uh, who is notably missing from this event is Lieutenant Governor uh, John Fetterman. Uh, He was not at this event. Uh, Now, uh, Pennsylvania, as you know, is obviously a very important and key battleground state. And we are going to see the president return to the state uh, more times in the coming few days, uh, including on Monday, on Labor Day. Uh, And then also on Thursday, he is going to be traveling to Philadelphia, where again, the White House is saying that he will be giving a speech uh, where the broad theme is going to be about protecting democracy uh, here in the country, Casey. Yeah, and we should note, of course, John Fetterman uh, running for Senate uh, from Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, the current attorney general running for governor. I think there may have been a little bit of confusion uh, in the president's speech. But MJ, what were the, the, some of your broader takeaways uh, from this speech? I mean, he really uh, hit on some very evocative images around gun violence, talking about Uvalde. And then he really hit at Republicans, especially uh, around January 6th and questioning their support for law enforcement over that. That's right. Essentially painting Republicans as being hypocrites uh, when it comes to their support or their stated support, he would say, for law enforcement. Uh, One line that really stood out to me, he said, look, I have a message to MAGA Republicans. He said, don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on January 6th. Uh, He went on to say, you can't say that you are pro-law enforcement if you are uh, pro-insurrection. Now, he uh, used all of this to basically lay out his own plan on a crime and bolstering law enforcement. Uh, This is a a plan where he has essentially asked for Congress uh, to appropriate tens of billions of dollars to do things like uh, hire and train more police officers. Uh, And I think one other thing that uh, was kind of interesting is you really got a sense listening to the speech, uh, just how much the issue of police and policing has become such a politically fraught issue uh, here in the U.S. Uh, He said that he definitely understands that people uh, across the country are just wanting to feel safe again. But then he also went on to say, look, I also recognize that there are plenty of cops, uh, police officers who are just uh, bad cops. 
Uh, but he said that the answer to that, he believes, is not to defund the police, but to support them even more. Uh, of course, one thing that he didn't mention is that there are uh, portions of his own party, uh, people in his own party, who are very much uh, for the slogan and the idea of defunding the police. So I think you really got a sense of how complicated this issue is, but also a sense of how the president intends to run on this issue, Casey. Yeah, he does seem to be attempting to reclaim it in a pretty aggressive way. All right, MJ Lee at the White House, thanks very much for that. And joining me now is Alberto Gonzalez, the former U.S. Attorney General under President George W. Bush. Uh, sir, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Really appreciate your perspective in the wake of a pretty tough speech from the president. I, I want to play for everyone again President Biden talking about law enforcement in January 6th, and then I'll get you to respond. Watch. Republican friends in Congress, don't tell me you support law enforcement if you won't condemn what happened on the 6th. Don't tell me. What do you make of that? President Biden responding to President Trump and many of his supporters? You know, I, I would go a little bit further. I would say, don't tell me you believe in the rule of law. Don't tell me you, you, you believe in democracy uh, if you are not willing to condemn what happened on January 6th. So, listen, I think that we, we have issues on both sides of the aisle, quite frankly. But uh, I, I certainly agree with the sentiment that, uh, you know, don't tell me that you support the police if you're not willing to condemn what happened on January 6th. He also talked, uh, President Biden talked at some length about political violence, uh, and he seemed to be responding uh, to Senator Lindsey Graham uh, when he said, if such and such, this is President Biden, if such and such happens, there will be blood in the streets, of course, potentially referring uh, to Lindsey Graham saying over the weekend that there would be riots in the streets in the event uh, that the former president is indicted over the search uh, down at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, what was your take on the president's uh, pushback to those comments? I, I, well, uh, I'm not going to comment so much on the president's pushback. Let me just comment first on Senator Graham's uh, comments, which I thought were terrible, uh, quite frankly. Uh, the notion that there should be any kind of violence in response to what may happen in our courts. Uh, again, the, the procedure is going to go according to the Constitution. Uh, former President Trump, if, if he is in fact charged and, and tried, it'll be pursuant to the protections afforded any defendant in our country. And so, uh, you know, whatever the repercussions or outcome of anything that happened with respect to the search of Mar-a-Lago, there shouldn't be violence in response to that. I, I, so I, I, I condemn what uh, Senator Graham said. I think it was inappropriate. I think it was wrong. Let me just uh, bring back, I think we actually have uh, the sound of Lindsey Graham. We can, we can show it to everyone to remind them what he said, and then I've got another question for you on the other side. Take a look. I'll say this. If there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle, which you presided over and did a hell of a good job, there'll be riots in the streets. So is he essentially okaying political violence there? And to go back to President Biden, I mean, one of the things he kept saying in the speech today is this is fundamentally un-American, that we suddenly have people out there suggesting political violence may be the solution. Look, I'm not going to say that he was suggesting violence in the street or encouraging violence in the street, but I think that uh, responsible leaders in Washington should be encouraging uh, patience. Let the process play out. And I'd said the same thing earlier, uh, you know, some time ago, that one of the best things that uh, former President Donald Trump can do 
uh, in addition to, of course, uh, cooperating with law enforcement in connection with this investigation, is to inform his supporters that the response to what's going on here, uh, even though it may be unpopular, that the response cannot be violence. That's not the way that we should be operating and conducting ourselves here in a democracy. The reality, of course, though, is is not, I mean, the track record that the former president has on this, and we can point to January 6th, is, is really to, in many ways, encourage the opposite from his supporters. I'm curious what you think Merrick Garland, the current attorney general, obviously you've been uh, in those shoes in the past, but he is in a very unique position as someone who has to make a decision about what to do here about the former president. Um, do you think he should be considering what Lindsey Graham suggested there, the fact that it might cause incredible political unrest, that the former president might actually encourage his supporters uh, to violence? I mean, can you take us inside what he might be thinking at this point along those lines? Well, I, I don't know General Garland. So let me let me begin by saying that. But I, I can tell you, based on what I understand, the kind of person that he is, is that a consideration? I, certainly he'll he'll think about that. He'll understand that there could be re, uh, th- those kinds of violent repercussions. But at the end of the day, he took an oath uh, to enforce the law. And so if he believes that a crime has been committed, and if he believes that he can prove that crime beyond a reasonable doubt in our courts, then he has an obligation to move forward. And the most that he can do at that point is, of course, prepare, uh, have the, the federal government prepare for any kind of reaction that may arise as a result of charges, as a result of a trial, as a result of a conviction. But uh, make no mistake about it, he has an obligation as the attorney general to make sure that crimes are prosecuted and, you know, and deal with the repercussions uh, when they occur. Yeah, actually, I I spoke to Liz Cheney about this uh, very topic and and her push uh, on that front was similar to to what you were saying, essentially arguing that this needs to be made outside of the context of any uh, political consideration, even if we're talking about the possibility of violence. What do you think is the responsibility of other Republican leaders? I mean, we we have seen many of them be very reluctant, if not refuse, uh, to go out and criticize uh, the former president. What are the responsibility of those types of lawmakers as this process moves forward? I think they have a responsibility um, to speak to the American people about the importance of patience again, Let's let the process play out. And whatever the repercussions, violence can never be the answer. And I I think that every elected official in this country has an obligation to deliver that message. Uh, I'm not not suggesting here that that, uh, uh, President uh, Donald Trump is guilty of anything. Former President Donald Trump is guilty of anything. Uh, He's entitled to due process under the law. But certainly it seems to me that, that our elected leadership should be informing the American people to be patient, let the process play out, and whatever the outcome, uh, violence cannot be the response. All right, Alberto Gonzalez, former former Attorney General, thanks very much for your time, sir. We really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Also this hour, Donald Trump, back at it. His dangerous posts today flooding the internet. Plus, the emergency in Jackson, Mississippi, water too dangerous to drink. This American city struggling to provide basic services It's a water crisis decades in the making reaches a boiling point. We're back now with our politics lead, President Biden's public safety push, including a renewed call to ban assault weapons. 
Moments ago in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, the president laid out exactly where he stands. I'm determined to ban assault weapons in this country. Determined. I did it once before, and I'll do it again. For many of you home, I want to be clear. It's not about taking away anybody's guns. In fact, we should be treating responsible gun owners as examples how every gun owner should behave. The president telling the crowd that they should vote against anyone who won't vote to ban assault weapons. Joining us now, CNN political commentators S.P. Cup and Paul Bagala. It's great to see both of you. Uh, Paul, let me start with you. I mean, what do you make of the president's message today on guns? Pretty bold. He's in a swing state. What do you think? Yeah, music to my ears. Uh, <laughs> you know, Joe Biden knows this issue. Uh, he did write the last uh, time we beat the NRA was Joe Biden's bill that banned assault weapons and those high capacity magazines. I worked for President Clinton, who signed that bill into law. But he's had, he's got the sweet spot, which is more cops, fewer guns. Right. He shut down the far left the nonsense about defund the police. He closed the door on that facet. In fact, fund the police and turn that back on the Republicans saying Republican MAGA extremists want to defund the FBI. Then he turned to the NRA. And said, we don't need these weapons of war. And he spoke with such passion. Gosh, as a, as a parent, can we talk about DNA? I, I don't even know if I can say it without weeping. About how those parents, those moms and dads in Uvalde, had to use DNA to identify their own children. And, you know, responsible gun owners support him on that. I'm one of them. We support him on banning assault weapons. And we support him on 100,000 more cops in community policing and cracking down on police brutality. I think he's exactly captured the heart of the country there. Essie, do you think that calling out the hypocrisy, what he called the hypocrisy of Republicans on law enforcement support, is that going to be effective for Democrats? He was essentially saying, I mean, he tied this into January 6th, too, saying you can't be for insurrection and also support law enforcement at the same time. Yeah, I think Democrats have long ceded patriotism, law and order, stuff like that to Republicans. And I think it sounds really refreshing to hear a Democrat talk about it and really put Republicans on the defense because they, they should be defensive. Um, but on the guns to my, to my friend, Paul Bagala, another law abiding gun owner like me, I mean, you could say this was brave and a powerful rebuke of the NRA. I, I happen to agree. Or you could say it was a bold strategy cotton to go into a Commonwealth like Pennsylvania that saw a surge in gun permits during the pandemic, that has a quarter of a million registered gun owners, that has the highest number of deer hunters in the country just behind Texas. Um, we'll see how that plays. I think it was kind of a, a bold but maybe risky move. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that, Essie, actually, as a um, former uh, Pennsylvania resident, I mostly grew up there. I mean, I think the the one pushback I would offer to you on that point is just the suburbs in Philadelphia and even the Pittsburgh area to a little bit of a lesser extent. I think the issue just cuts very differently there. So it's interesting to me that he said this in Pennsylvania in Wilkes-Barre, which is, of course, in the middle of the state with a lot of those people you were, were talking about. But instead of interesting That's choices, right. um, let's talk a little bit more, Paul, about the fact that President Trump is campaigning for Republicans in PA uh, this coming weekend. Uh, in the last 24 hours, the former president has posted more than 60 times on his Truth Social website. He attacked Mitch McConnell. He defended the House Majority Leader, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he perpetuated this obviously false idea that somehow he is the rightful president. 
he attacked the FBI <laughs> to President Biden's point. I mean, what what is happening here, Paul? Well, a hit dog will holler, won't he? I mean, he just, something is getting to him. I'm not sure what's getting under his skin, uh, but he's clearly panicked and upset about something. And, and, you know, I'm sure Republicans who are running are kind of thinking of that old country song, how can I miss you if you won't go away? Um, the, The Republicans had this election teed up on Biden, inflation, and crime. And now the president has turned it, President Biden, so that now the election is about Trump, abortion, and guns. Well, that, that's an that's a, uh, issue, uh, terrain that Democrats can run on and win. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not a big Trump fan, but as a Democrat, I guess I'm kind of happy to see him uh, uh, sticking his face into these races. Uh, you're not the only Democratic strategist I've spoken to who feels that way about Trump's resurgence here. S.E., um, let me show you this post that Trump retruthed. That's the truth social name for <laughs> retweeting. Um, it has the words, your enemy is not in Russia over the faces of the vice president, the president, and the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, There were a couple of posts like this. Uh, It's very alarming on the one hand and also seems to be like a regular Tuesday for Donald Trump. I mean, how seriously do we need to take this? I mean, on the one hand, this is the kind of stuff that makes him still one of the most dangerous men in America. He's still convincing a not insignificant number of people to treat Americans, whether it's the president, journalists, immigrants, their neighbors, um, as the enemy. That makes him very, very dangerous. On the other, to your point, Casey, the noise uh, of Trump is so constant that this almost, I mean, in in a good way, I think we're a little bit numb to it. I, I mean, at least that's what I'm hoping, because that is truly dangerous rhetoric. It is indeed. All right. Paul Begala, SE Cup, thanks very much for that conversation. Really appreciate you being here. But we are getting some breaking news in here. Word of one of modern history's most critical leaders just passed away. We're back now with breaking news. Mikhail Gorbachev, one of the most consequential world leaders of the 20th century, has died at 91. This, according to Russian state media. Gorbachev was the last leader of the Soviet Union, and he ushered in a new openness from the communist empire that led to the end of the Cold War. CNN's Matthew Chance looks back at his life and his impact on Russia and the world. With that port-stained birthmark on his forehead, Mikhail Gorbachev was one of the most recognizable figures in 20th century politics. His attempts to reform the Soviet Union and his role in ending the Cold War made him one of its most influential, too. As a young man, Gorbachev studied law at Moscow State University. It's there he met and married fellow student Raisa Titarenko. He went on to forge a career in the Communist Party, eventually, age 54, becoming its general secretary, the leader of the Soviet Union. It was in this role that Gorbachev and his wife broke the mould. He, for his outgoing, charismatic nature, Raisa for her stylish outfits and for the unheard of elegance she brought to the role of Soviet First Lady. But the vast communist nation they ruled was on the brink of crisis. Amid shortages of food and consumer goods, the Soviet command economy was grinding to a halt. There was also alarm at the apparently slow response of the Soviet authorities to the nuclear disaster at Chernobyl. Gorbachev tried to fix things with what he called perestroika and glasnost, 
reforms that were to revolutionize the Soviet system. I began these reforms and my guiding stars were freedom and democracy, without bloodshed, so the people would cease to be herd led by a shepherd, they would become citizens. There was revolution too in relations with the West. Face to face with US President Ronald Reagan, Gorbachev made a stunning proposal to eliminate all nuclear missiles held by the two superpowers. It was the beginning of the end of the Cold War. Soon the Berlin Wall would fall. And after a failed coup by hardliners in Moscow, the Soviet Union itself was dissolved and Gorbachev resigned. I hereby discontinue my activities at the post of President of the USSR. In 1999, he lost the love of his life, his wife of 46 years, Raisa, who died of leukemia. But there was no love lost between many Russians and Gorbachev. To many of his countrymen, he would always be the man who allowed the great Soviet empire to collapse, exposing millions to hardship and humiliation. Even Gorbachev himself expressed regret. I fought the best I could to defend the Soviet Union, but I failed. But in the West, he was revered and celebrated as a great statesman a Nobel Peace Prize winner who played a decisive role in ending the Cold War, peacefully diffusing the most dangerous standoff of the 20th century. Our thanks to Matthew Chance for that reporting. Now I want to bring in Jill Doherty, Russia analyst and the former CNN Moscow bureau chief. Jill, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Gorbachev was such an extremely influential politician and leader in Russian history. Um, You lived in Russia for... About a decade, you met Gorbachev several times. Uh, how, what was your reaction when you heard he'd passed? You know, intense sadness, really, because Gorbachev, I think, in contrast to any previous, certainly, Soviet leader, was a personal leader. He, was, he had extraordinary charisma. And just on a personal basis, you know, interviewing him, meeting him, and also his relationship with, which Matthew mentioned, with his wife, Raisa. He, was, he broke the mold when it came to an approachable, personable leader. And not, not to mention, of course, his role in history, which was enormous. If you just look at the Soviet Union itself and how he changed that, he changed it with uh, glasmust, which means, you know, openness. And all of a sudden... Uh, publications that nobody could ever read before. They, they were all over the place. People were reading forbidden literature. Uh, there was a complete intellectual opening and a social opening. And then perestroika, that's, I think, the most difficult part of all, because perestroika means rebuilding. And what he wanted to do, and this is where he failed, is to keep the Soviet Union going. He believed that you could reform it, turn it into something like maybe European socialism, but that was impossible. And, uh, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed. And because of that, when people really began to live extremely hard lives, the economy fell apart, there was no structure uh, left anymore to, to the economy or even societally, people began to blame him. And to this day, many Russians revive, revile him. So he's, I, to me, he is the person who absolutely changed history with his own personality to have that vision that somehow things could change. And it didn't work out the way he wanted it to, but 
uh, he certainly will go down in history as the person who who really reformed and brought Russia out of the darkness into what eventually became some type of democracy. Uh, we know the problems that exist right now, but Gorbachev certainly, I, I would hope that Russians eventually, come you know, many years from now, will remember him as a person who actually improved Russia and, and saved Russia from itself at many moments. Certainly he'll be remembered in the West as someone who approved, uh, improved the world. Uh, Jill, stand by for me, please. I, I want to bring in CNN's Fred Plaikin. He is in Moscow. Fred, what is the reaction in Russia to the news? Hi there, Casey. Well, this is obviously just dropping here in Russian news agencies. And really, so far, what we're getting is a message from the hospital where Mikhail Gorbachev was being treated, which simply said, uh, and I'm translating this as I go, uh, tonight, uh, this evening, after a very prolonged and very severe illness, um, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev has died. That's so far all we have from the hospital itself. And obviously reaching out to various government agencies. It's already pretty late here in Moscow. But I do think that Jill is obviously... Uh, absolutely right. Where a lot of people here in Russia um, will obviously be very sad tonight, will be mourning tonight. But at the same time, Mikhail Gorbachev did sort of have a mixed bag of results for a lot of people here in this country and certainly is not someone who necessarily has been a popular figure here over the past uh, couple of years, over the past couple of decades. Many, of course, saying that he was responsible for the end of the Soviet Union. And many people feel that it's sort of brought this country into into a chaos uh, that, uh, you know, it, it took a long time for the country to recover from. So when you speak to people here on the streets in Moscow and other Russian cities, you won't necessarily hear very kind words about Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, you won't necessarily hear uh, a lot of people with a lot of sympathy for Mikhail Gorbachev. But I, I do think that Jill is absolutely correct to say that obviously he brought the then Soviet Union into a whole different path, a whole new era. And, and, you know, also one of the things that we have to point out with Mikhail Gorbachev is that while he wasn't necessarily very popular here in Russia, especially during the during the Putin era and during the 1990s, you know, when a lot of the uh, when life became very difficult for a lot of people, there was a lot of disorderliness here uh, in uh, in Moscow and other cities. But if you look, for instance, towards Europe, obviously he's someone who is absolutely adored there. You look, for instance, at Germany, where he's still very much revered by a lot of people. He actually lived in Germany for an extended period of time. And of course, many people believe that he was largely responsible for the unification of Europe together with the other very large leaders, like, for instance, Ronald Reagan, George Bush Sr., Helmut Kohl, uh, and François Mitterrand. Really remarkable. And Jill, you mentioned Gorbachev was, of course, the last leader of the Soviet Union and that Glasnost, his openness program, did usher in a new era of Russian politics. I mean, that really eventually led to the end of the Cold War. I mean, what what were what can you tell us about some of those relationships uh, that Fred was just walking through with the great leaders of that era? Well, certainly um, I'm thinking um, George Bush Sr., George H.W., and, and Reagan, you'd have to go back, I think, to Reagan and uh, beginning the uh, control, arms control was probably the most important for the world. You know, those two countries bristling with nuclear weapons and the fact that they got together and decided that they were going to reduce the number of weapons and bring some type of stability um, I think also, you know, when you get to the, the end of the Soviet Union, his relationship is almost, you'd have to say, with almost any leader 
um, was usually quite personal. There are very interesting letters that he exchanged with uh, George H.W. Bush and, uh, and with Reagan. And I think, you know, when you look at these, these letters, you realize that I think he understood that he was moving Russia into a new world. And, and yet he was a very uh, ebullient person. You know, I wouldn't say that he was, uh, you know, modest, but there was a certain kind of down-to-earth modesty about him, too, that I, that I always remember. And um, I think, you know, when you, when you think of, of Russia today, uh, I don't want to get too much into today because it's a time to remember Mr. Gorbachev, but the openness and information that people were exposed to at that point, the reverse is happening today, sadly, that Russia is shutting down access to information. And the, I can remember those times where there was absolute excitement when the latest uh, magazine would come out filled with articles about Russia and the world, and people were really, really excited. This, this is a, a different country right now. It, it most certainly is. Um, the current president, Biden, here met with Gorbachev in 2009 at the White House. This is, of course, when Biden was vice president. Uh, president Obama stopped by. You see the photograph there. The meeting at the time was about reducing global nuclear weapons. So clearly Gorbachev had a life on the public stage after he had left his leadership post in Russia. Oh, yes. And also, if I remember correctly, he did some uh, advertisements. <laughs> I'd have to uh, recall exactly. I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who remember uh, some of the advertisements that he did. I mean, he was very open. You know, business was uh, coming to Russia. There was an invest- investment at the end of the Soviet Union and certainly the beginning of modern uh, Russia. But, you know, I think another part of this that's very interesting is Gorbachev and Yeltsin did not get along. And this was quite noticeable toward the end, you know, when Yeltsin was coming on the scene as the president of Russia, of the Russia, uh, Russian Republic. And uh, those two men were really um, sparring politically. At the very end, they did co- cooperate, I think, but there was, there was a lot of animosity. And I think, you know, if you look at Yeltsin, he realized that the Communist Party and the system that they had could not go on. And I think... You know, much as Gorbachev was not particularly, a, you know, uh, enamored with the Communist Party, but he did believe that the economic Russia, Soviet Union, could continue and be reformed. Yeltsin did not. So Yeltsin came in and basically smashed all the furniture and changed the system, brought down, it was the end of communism, and it was the end of the, yeah. of the old Soviet Union. Jill, hold, hold on, because I, I, I want to ask Fred about this, too. I, Fred, how did Gorbachev and the Gorbachev era influence what we're seeing now, influence Vladimir Putin's leadership? Hmm. Well, I think it, it influenced Vladimir Putin in a way that Vladimir Putin um, never wants Russia to be what the Soviet Union was when Mikhail Gorbachev took over, and then also, of course, when the Soviet Union fell apart. I think, actually, of what, of what influences Vladimir Putin today and throughout Vladimir Putin's career is due to the end times of the Soviet Union, to the time that Vladimir Putin spent in Dresden uh, when he was an officer there. Uh, And then later, of course, when he went back to Russia after the Soviet Union uh, fell apart and had a a pretty tough time there. So I do think it has a huge influence on Vladimir Putin 
in that he wants Russia to be a lot stronger now than the Soviet Union was at the end of its days. Very interesting point. Jill Doherty, Fred Plaikin, thank you very much uh, for getting that together for us. And we're going to have much more from Jill and Fred coming up in our next hour. Plus, how much that region has changed. Putin now in charge and invading Ukraine. We're going to go live there next. We're back with our world lead as we learn of the death of former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. He pushed for a more open Soviet Union. Quite the contrast from what we see now under Vladimir Putin. International inspectors are in Kyiv preparing for the risky journey to a Russian-controlled power plant in southern Ukraine, made more dangerous by ongoing Russian shelling along corridors to that station, according to one Ukrainian official. Now CNN's Sam Kiley takes us right up to the front lines in the south as Ukraine vows to chase Russians back over the border. A lightning advance by Ukraine against Russia leaves a winded landscape almost emptied of people. Ukraine claims to have broken through Russian front lines close to here, capturing several villages in a new counteroffensive. We've been stopped at a roadblock about a kilometre short of where they say they've been incoming fire in the last 24 hours, but we can see very clearly here that in these tree lines, these tree lines were all occupied by Ukrainian forces until 24 hours ago with the beginning of this counter-offensive. This has clearly been a location where there's been pretty heavy fighting. The fighting is now concentrated, we understand, from soldiers we've spoken to here close to the front line, five or six kilometres beyond, and beyond that lies the ultimate goal of Kherson. The regional capital, captured by Russia in March, was rocked by fighting, Russia said today. Its forces claim to have wiped out a Ukrainian partisan cell in a firefight. Who actually won the skirmish is unclear, but the city has been the center of Ukrainian resistance for months. Ukraine says that it has damaged the bridges connecting it to the Russian-held left bank of the Dnieper River, cutting off key supply lines for the Russians. They may continue to try to set up a ferry or pontoon crossing, but the whole area where it can be deployed is also under our fire control and will be hit. Russia's claim to have held off an offensive in which it lost at least four villages in 48 hours, according to Ukrainian military sources. Maria and her husband Kostya stayed on her farm in Ukraine's front line throughout the war to feed their livestock. But months of shelling have left her shaking. This week she's endured jets streaming overhead as Ukrainian fighters attacked Russian targets. I hid inside the house. My heart was jumping out every time. I was screaming so loud when the planes were flying over. I was so scared. God save us. For now, though, survival means getting the harvest in. This may be a long war, and winter is close at hand. Now, Casey, as uh, if the uh, Ukrainian advance continues, they're clearly going to tighten the vice more and more around Kherson, and that ultimately risks the problem that the Ukrainians will face, which is they'll, they may end up laying siege themselves to a Ukrainian city. And that is something they need to avoid, Casey. Indeed. Sam Kiley in Ukraine, thanks very much for that report. Our coverage continues right now with the situation. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.